Well, good morning. Let's do a little something different I just decided just now. I want to give you a quote from Billy Graham to start off. Then I want to pray and we'll get into the book of Acts because we're covering chapters. So I want to use our time maybe a little more, a little better. So here's a, a quote from Billy Graham. He said, I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel on every continent in most of the countries of the world. And I have found that when I present the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority, quoting from the very word of God, he takes that message and drives it supernaturally into the human heart, unquote. That's what I love about getting in the word of God, because it is a extraterrestrial communication from God himself to speak to our hearts about his heart for us. So the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Our job is not to save people. Our job is to say it, to pray it, and to stay at it. That's our job. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're getting a picture of what they were involved in as the church. And what they were involved in was preaching the gospel and people coming to know Jesus in multitudes. And God has different seasons when he's working among the world, in the world through his church. So my desire personally is that I will be more active, more proactive, more intentional about Pray about saying the gospel, praying the gospel, and staying at it. Now, I'm hoping that you're joining me on this journey. Are you? We go through the book of Acts. It's 28 studies, 28 chapters. So one, st one chapter a week. I'm hoping that you'll join me and join us in reading the next chapter. So this coming, this next Sunday, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. The whole story about Cornelius and his salvation, a Gentile. So I hope that you'll read that chapter I'm going to send out an email every week, as I've been doing, to encourage you in not only reading the Bible, but in praying, because those two go hand in hand. As we're, and we're going to, on Saturday, we're going to have our prayer summit. I'm excited about that also. What I feel the Lord has, has kind of said to my heart is, I dare you to go into that, that, that summit this weekend, which is going to be from 10 to 4, and I hope many of you will come. Last week, we, we, we did a thing on courageous discipleship. We're talking about prayer this time. And this is our year of prayer. So on Saturday, we're going to spend time from 10 to 4 seeking the Lord together about in this thing called prayer and the responsibilities we all have to be leading someone, some way in this life to bring them to the, into the kingdom of God. And if they're already in the kingdom of God, we want to make sure that they're growing as believers. That's called discipleship. So hopefully this Saturday you'll come. I feel like the Lord said, hey, I dare you to go at it trusting me trusting the Holy Spirit that he is going to lead and guide us as a church in this thing called Christianity. So would you amen me on that? And I hope that you'll, you'll come Saturday. But more important even than all of that is I hope, as I'll close my study today, what we need desperately is time with God. We need solitary time with God. We need to be spending time in his word, reading it. And we're going to talk about this in the prayer summit. Our prayer is simply a conversation with God. I'm talking to God. And often I think we think we got to attain to something to talk to God. Now, hold on a second. We have a mediator. He's called Jesus Christ. We have this wonderful relationship with God through him where we have boldness to access him at any time in any place. So it's a conversation. That's prayer. Group prayer is simply a conversation among all of us, and we're just asking God to join in. Can I hear an amen on that one? So Billy Graham, in saying this, just again reiterates for me, it re-emphasizes for me that God's given us everything that we need 
in his word to tell people about him. He's given us the Holy Spirit who Jesus said when he comes into the world, when he comes into our lives as the church, as believers, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it's not our job to save. It's our job to say it, to pray it, and to stay at it. So let me pray, and we'll get into the book of Acts uh, chapter 9. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask, Lord, as you said, to pray up believing the promise that you would give to us of your Holy Spirit. So pray up believing. And, Lord, we are asking, and I'm asking, Lord, the things that I prepared, you break them fresh for us and feed us. We're hungry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Give us ears to hear, I pray, that we might be this that we might leave here saying, God, you are among us and you spoke to us. And we're also praying for anyone that's hearing your word this morning who does not know you, has not come into that relationship with you through repenting of sin, turning from their old lives, believing, Lord, that you promised them forgiveness through your son, asking for that, receiving from you your Holy Spirit, and I pray and we're asking, Lord, we would see many, many more people responding to you through the word, the gospel, and coming to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So, Lord, as we look at this whole area of the conversion of a soul, I pray now you'd anoint the word as I share it. You'd bless it, Lord, that we might receive from you, from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn to Acts chapter 9, if you would. And we have this, this story now of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So in verse 1 it says, then, then Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Acts 9.1, went to the high priest. He asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that's Christianity, Jesus and I am the way, the truth, the life, any of the way, so a sect, as it were, of Judaism, we are we are, our roots are in Judaism. Can you hear any man? We're, we, our roots are in Christ. He was a Jew. God promised through the Jews that he would bless the world through them. Jesus was Jewish. He came in the world. So the way now is this sect called Christianity, what we call Christianity. So if any were found who were of the way, whether men or, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so as he journeyed, so Saul of Tarsus is at it big time. He's wanting the church snuffed out. He's wanting Christians silenced. Now, when we speak about the conversion of a soul, a name and a story, we have to begin with this introduction, that our God is a seeking and saving God. Our God is a seeking and saving God. So what did he do? He sent his son into the world, and Jesus, when he came into the world, said this, Luke 19, 10, the son of man has come to what? Seek and to save who? That which was lost. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you who don't, don't know Christ yet, sin caused us separation from God. We were lost in knowing him. He can't, unless he comes and reveals him, we're not going to find him. But he revealed himself to us through his son. So I love Luke chapter 15. It's filled with these three parables of what happens when something's lost in the heart of God. The first thing Jesus says is, when a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes away, one of them goes astray, he leaves the 99 to find that one sheep that was lost. So one out of a hundred sheep, what does the shepherd do? He leaves them 
He goes and finds that one that's lost. And when he finds it, he rejoices, has a party. And Jesus said, that's what happens in heaven when one sinner repents. One sinner comes back to God. One sinner acknowledges that I'm a, all, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. I've gone astray. And they come back to God. What does God do? Well, you know, you should have never went astray. No, he rejoices over one sinner who what? Repents. Repentance means you're acknowledging there's something really wrong. And I want to get it right. So I'm going to turn from that wrong in agreeing with God. Confession means I'm agreeing with what God said about that. And all we like sheep have gone astray. All we, not some, all we have gone astray. So the shepherd, one out of a hundred, leaves those hundred to go find the one that was lost. That's seeking to save. Then he gives the parable of the woman who has ten coins. And one of them is lost. So in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, that woman has 10 silver coins. If she loses one coin, does not, she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully until she finds it. That is the heart of God, to light it up, to seek it out, and find that one lost coin or the one lost soul. And so when she finds it, same response, rejoices. See, that's God's heart. He he is a seeking and saving God. He wants to find those that he might reveal himself to them and bring them back to himself. And then the whole house rejoices. The whole sheepfold rejoices. Now the final one he gives, which is a very poignant and very personal parable for me, because I was a prodigal. How many of you were prodigals? Meaning you, you knew your heavenly father, you walked with him, you were a part, but you wandered. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. God, take my heart and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. I know what it's like to be a prodigal. I was a prodigal. I received the Lord at 10 years old, and I wandered. And that's why this is such a personal parable. The interesting thing about the final parable is, he, doesn't, he, he says there were two sons, one older, one younger. The younger son decided, you know, I just want to get out of the house. I want all my inheritance, and I'm going to go live the high life. And so his father grants that to him. You see, God will honor our choices. And sometimes that can be not such a good thing. We think we know better, but we don't know better. And we find that out sometimes the hard way. I always pray, we pray for my Charlotte and I pray. I hope that my kids don't have to learn the lessons of life the hard way. But I'll tell you what, most of us learn the lessons of life the hard way. And so the son goes away. And he's living his life, and he wastes his, his whole inheritance in riotous living. He's living for himself, and he comes up very empty. That's what happens whenever you go to live life for yourself and be self-centered. You see, if you're the center of your universe, that's pretty, a pretty lonely place. You put God in the center of your life, and it's a full, rich life called eternal life. So the son wastes it all. He winds up living in the pigsties. And it says he comes to himself and he realizes, you know, I had such a better life when I was home with my father. And he began to, he came up empty. That's what happens. And so he said, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be your son. And this is what gets me. Because his father says, my son was dead. There's a lot. My son was lost and is found. And then his brother, his older brother, comes and says, well, now, wait a second. I've been here all the time. I've never wandered. I've not wasted anything. And what his father said to his older son was, your brother was dead and is alive. Your brother was lost and found. 
You see, we are all children of God, and we're all brothers with one another. And he, he threw a party, he rejoiced that this, his son, was dead and is alive. His son was lost and is found. This, your brother, was dead and is alive. This, your brother, was lost and found. Wow. Our God is a seeking and saving God. And he sent his son into the world to demonstrate his love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Jesus was crucified for us willingly. And that's how God solved the problem of the separation that took place there way back in the garden. All born sinners from Adam. All have this problem. God solved the problem for us. Our God is a seeking and saving God. So the conversion of a soul, a soul with a name and a story, and in this case, it's Saul. He has a name and he has a story. Now, as we look at the story, you're going, man, that guy was bad. He was bad news. If we look at sin correctly, we're all bad news. Can I hear an amen? Sin has done its work throughout all of, of humanity, beginning in Adam. And so Saul is going around wanting to kill Christians, snuff out the church. I like what it says here. Then Saul, still breathing. You see, as long as someone is still breathing, there's hope for their salvation. Once they stop breathing, there is no more hope unless they've repented in this life. It is appointed unto men to die once and then the judgment. And so I would say it's an urgent message to you who have not yet repented of your sin. Because it's appointed to men once to die, then the judgment. So in this life, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen to what God's saying. Hear his heart. To, he's seeking you. He wants to save you from your sin. So as long as someone's still breathing, there's still hope. And Saul is still breathing. And I think we need to let this truth sink down into our hearts. Whatever soul you might see, as, as bad as their story might be, God still sent Jesus that they might be saved. And that's what he wants to do. Saul of Tarsus, though he was a religious zealot, successful, highly esteemed, was as lost as anyone has ever been lost because he didn't know God. In fact, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that you may not be made to stumble. John 16. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. That's Saul of Tarsus. That's what he was doing. And these things they will do to you because, here's Saul, they have not known me nor the Father who sent me. Saul, as religious as he was, as steeped in Judaism as he was, did not know the Father or Jesus whom he sent for who they were. He thought he knew them, but he didn't. He was zealous for God. Amazing. In his testimonies, we have Acts 9, the story. Acts 22 and 26 are his testimonies. So three times in the book of Acts, we get his testimony. And in his testimony, he goes back to this whole thing. He thought he was so zealous for God, but he was so wrong in his zeal. And it wasn't until he was, he was there arrested on that road to Damascus that he realized he had been wrong all the way along. That's repentance. That's coming to understand the gravity of the human heart because the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
Great zeal does not mean anything as far as a relationship with God. Going to church doesn't mean anything as far as a relationship with God. It can look so good on the outside, but what's going on in the heart? See, that's the question. And a soul with a name and a story, I think it's important to realize everyone's got a story. Saul's may not be all that good, but it's a story. It's a story that God himself intervened in to begin to make his story come alive through the life of Saul of Tarsus. I don't know how many of you watch 60 Minutes. I don't watch it all the time, but I did watch it back on March 11th. And there was this, this story called Treating Trauma, Oprah Winfrey interviewed several people about what is called trauma-informed care. In the, then in the 60 Minutes Overtime segment, Oprah said this, this story, quote, this story had more impact than practically anything I've ever done. She said it changed the way I see everyone, unquote. Anybody see this segment? It really impacted me, and I'll tell you why. Oprah's own childhood was one of extreme trauma. I don't know if you know her story at all, but extreme trauma. She's got a story, and it's, 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 an, it's uh, not a very fun story when you hear about her childhood. When asked if she could point to one person who made the difference, she knew immediately who that person was, and she said, absolutely, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Duncan. Why? How she responded to me, Oprah said, instilled in me the sense that I mattered, that I was valued and loved. And then she said, when, when uh, Mrs. Duncan in fourth grade, then her sixth grade teacher, Mr. Ham, also had the same relationship with her, treated her with respect, loved her, cared for her, impacted her life like crazy. So this trauma-informed care is this. The first question that they ask is, what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you. What happened? What's your story? How did you get here? What happened in your life? And she's talking to these, this, uh, I think, I forget what it's called, but this place that takes in children who've been traumatized because of sexual abuse or whatever it might be. And, they and they're ministering to these kids. And the first question they ask is, what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you. I thought, wow, that is so powerful. What are we doing when we ask what happened? We're asking for your story. What brought you to this point in your life? Saul of Tarsus, what brought you here? And he could go through it all. He does that actually in Corinthians. Hey, I was the Hebrew, the Hebrews, and all. And he gives this story. And he thought he was so right, but he was so wrong. I'm not suggesting that Saul of Tarsus had a traumatic childhood. In fact, probably the exact opposite. What I am saying is this. Every soul has a name and every soul has a story. What I'm saying is that every soul is valued and loved by God. That, that is why God sent his son to live among us and die for us because of what happened to all of us. And what happened is sin. God's dealing with the heart problem so they can then change the behavior that happens from that. You see, we don't sin because we sin doesn't make us sinners. We're sinners, that's why we sin. Someone who steals a car, he's not a, he's not a car thief because he stole the car. He was already a car thief, that's why he stole the car. See, from the source of sin comes our behavior, comes why, we're, why we go through what we go through. But God corrects that. 
inwardly. God starts in the heart. He starts inside and through the change that takes place in our relationship with God in our hearts with the Holy Spirit. Then he begins to work out our sanctification. And by the way, a little plug for my Romans e-group. Wednesday nights, we're going to start, we're going to go through Romans 1 through 8. Powerful, important, it's called the fifth gospel. Teaching us how is it, what, how is this relationship with sin work now? How is our relationship with the law work now? How does this all set us free? So in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. How do I walk in the spirit and all those things? You see, God starts with the heart and then he works it out in sanctifying us and changing us. And so I can look back and say, God, I'm thankful I'm not what I was. But I can also look forward and say, Lord, I know you've got a lot more work to do. I think we should all have signs around our neck that say, God at work, be patient. (laughs) God at work, would you give me a break? Because he's working these things. It's God who works in us both to what? Willing to do of what pleases who? Him. He is a good master craftsman. He is the potter in the clay. I say, Lord, help me to yield myself to your loving touch, your merciful touch, your compassionate touch on my life because I have a lot of lumps. I got a lot of problems. And God is working those things out in my life and he wants to work them out in your life. See, to correct correct behavior, God starts at the source of the problem and that is sin. That's why he sent Jesus. So can we begin there? Our God is a seeking and saving God. And with every soul, there's a name and a story, Saul's, and there's a Savior with a name and a story. Can I hear an amen? So verse 5, as he journeyed to come near Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, what Jesus does is he gets someone's full attention. Do you remember when he got your full attention? I remember when I was coming back to Christ. I wasn't walking. I wasn't thinking about him. And I played tennis in Virginia. And the person who set me up to play with this guy who I didn't even know, I saw him one time in my whole life, played tennis with him. And, but she warned me and said, you know, when you play, he's gonna, when you're all done, he's going to jump over the net. He's going to come around that. He's going to talk to you about God. And I said, how about it? I mean, I had a joint, so I was doing fine. <laughs> sure enough, he jumps over, tell, gives me a little track. I read the track. And there it's like a light from heaven came and shone in all my waywardness. And God had me. You see, there's this encounter that happens. And it happened for Saul. And he's an encounter with Jesus Christ. The God of heaven had hunted down the hunter and felled his prey. And God's good at that. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He describes God's pursuit of him in his autobiography. He compares it to this. He says, God's the great angler playing his fish. How many of you are fishermen? God's the great fisherman, the great angler, playing his fish. He says he's like a cat chasing a mouse. You ever see that happen? He says he's like a a pack of hounds uh, closing in on a fox. You know, we, you think of how, you know, you think, well, I can, I can get out of, we can't escape God. Well, we try. God outmaneuvers us every time. When I came when I was in, in Virginia, I, I said, i got to get right with God. And I said, okay, I'm going to buy a van, pack all my stuff in. I'm leaving New York. I'm going to make my way across the United States. I'm going to go down to California. And I said to God, God, when I get to California, I'll find you there. And God sort of chuckled and said, pal, I already got your number. 
you know, driving across there, I'm going to put a little more fear in your heart as you're driving across because it is a winter. And, and I'm thinking, if I don't get to California, I'm going to die and go to hell as certain as I'm driving this van. So, guys, I'm going to shake you up a little more. You know, some come by fear. But God had my number all the way along. All the way along. Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, said, when God who called me from my mother's womb, as Saul was saved, and he's looking back at his life, he realized from the very beginning, God had knit him together in his mother's womb. He was fearfully and wonderfully made. God had a purpose and a plan for his life. And he was working out in spite of Saul and all of his antics and all of his anger. God who called me from my mother's womb. Think about that a minute. God has your number. He's got my number. Then he says this. He's the divine chess player, maneuvering him into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he, he concedes checkmate. You remember the day when God said, checkmate? Gotcha. No move. You're, you're, you're out of moves. Now, some earthly-minded preachers have said that Paul's experience here was heat stroke from the desert sun. Others say he was under a lot of stress. Or he didn't really hear what he thought he heard. Or that Paul was struck by a bolt of lightning on a clear day and he only thought he heard a voice. I like the fifth one, that Paul had an epileptic seizure. Because I like it, because Spurgeon said... If that's true, I wish that all men have epilepsy. This is not any of those. This is the, in, the intervention of the Son of God into the heart and life of Saul of Tarsus. He turned him upside down, inside out, and right side up again in one encounter. And brethren, that's the conversion of a soul. Coming to Christ. And so he said, Lord, who are you? Verse 5. The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Conversion of a soul came through a conscience that still kicked. Conscience is a good thing. Conscience is something that God has given to us that reminds us painfully something is wrong. Conscience, said an Indian, is a three-cornered thing in my heart that stands still when I am good. But when I am bad, it turns around and the corners hurt a lot. If I keep on doing wrong, the corners wear off and it does not hurt anymore, unquote. May God help us to be thankful for a guilty conscience, a painful conscience, because that is what leads to the changes that God wants to make in our lives. The pain of conscience bearing down on Saul day and night. And I think most poignantly, most directly, when in Acts chapter 8 we read of them stoning Stephen, and they were laying their clothes at the feet of one named Saul, Acts 7. Chapter 8, Saul increases his animosity and anger toward the church. You see, many times a guilty conscience is evidenced by a greater emotional response. Trying to avoid what's really going on. Trying to silence it, quiet it. So just going at it even harder. But he couldn't get away from it. As he sees Stephen there being, being uh, stoned to death, martyred. And he says, Lord, do not lay these things in charge. I believe that was the culmination of a lot of things going on in, his, in the mind of Saul. His conscience saying, you know, maybe they are right. Maybe the Christians are. Maybe Jesus is who he said he is. Because Saul was there. He was in Jerusalem. It's very possible he saw Jesus not on one occasion but on several. Maybe at the Passover. So we don't have any details on that. We don't know that. 
but he was there. And so the Holy Spirit is really good about working on someone's conscience. Now, verse 6, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So Jesus here is not only seeking his full attention, he's seeking now to bring him to a final submission to him as Lord. That's the conversion of a soul. You can't say Jesus saved you without him being Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? He's saying, what do you want me to do, Lord? He didn't stand up and say, I'm Saul. Hold on a second. I'm Saul. He didn't do that. Muhammad Ali was a great boxer. He would go around and arrogantly proclaim, I am the greatest. And he really thought he was the greatest. One day, back in his prime, he was on an airplane and the plane was ready to take off. And the flight attendant had repeatedly told him to put on his seatbelt. He finally said to her, I'm Superman and Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant shot back, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> None of us are supermen or superwomen. We need to bow before him who is Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the first step in knowing him is submission to his lordship through repentance and faith in who he is. Acts 9, uh, verse 7. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, having hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What's going on here? I believe that Saul, who had been on an angry, hate-filled tirade to, to imprison and kill Christians, to kill the followers of Jesus Christ, he's going over and over in his mind everything that he had been doing to murder Christians, put them in prison. I believe he was going over his mind, seeing their anguish and seeing their hurt and seeing the tears. And, see, and it's all going through his mind because these as followers of Jesus weren't reviling back. He was seeing in the church and those he was bringing in the same thing he saw with Stephen. And it was bugging him. It was bothering him. And now the reality is set in. That's exactly what was happening. He was against Jesus. He was persecuting those who Jesus loved. Persecuting the church. A devastating thing to come to. And that great pain is the reason that he became a great man. Because he walked through those things. Three days and three nights. He didn't see anyone. But what he did see was what God was showing him about what had been going on. He's alone there with the Holy Spirit. He's alone there with all of his pains about what he had been doing that was so wrong. You ever have those moments with the Lord? It's one of the greatest freeing moments you can ever have. Where you really suddenly realize, I was wrong. And in going and making it right, there's a freedom and a change that's transforming in anyone's life. One of the most important things we ever say, one of the most powerful things we can ever say to some other soul is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And see, that's the conversion of a soul. That's the change in a person's life. To come to the realization when you're alone with your thoughts at night, you're alone thinking about your past, 
even as a Christian. And you help, you say, and you know, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately, who can know it? But the next verse says, I, the Lord, search the hearts. And so we say, Lord, as, as David said in Psalm 139, search me, O God, search my heart. Show me, because I can't see it, but I want to see it, Lord, because I know as long as I'm not seeing it, I'm going to be blind. I want you to open my eyes. I want the scales to drop off. I want to see as you see. I want to walk in your light as you have called me to do in fellowship with you. He's alone with his conscience, his beliefs, his theology. That's a good place to be because then what happens is Jesus was seeking his full salvation and he was saved there on that road to Damascus. Reflecting on all his days past him, we, we find in Acts 26, and we'll get this, that God gave to then, he saved him for a commission. So I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you to the Jews. You're going to preach the gospel to them. They're going to, you're going to deliver them from the kingdom of darkness. Through you, I'm going to deliver them. And he gave Saul a great commission. That's why he saved him, and that's why he saved us. The conversion is a commission to take to the world the gospel, to take to the world the things of our testimony, our story, our name. And I appreciated, Johnny, what you were saying about making a name. Is that not so true? And I, love, I was thinking making a name for Jesus, but then he said, let's make a name for these kids. That they're not nameless and they're not, pay, they're, they're, they're a lot of pain, but they're not named. I loved it. Such a, a, a great picture of what God wants to do in our conversion and our commission is to be impacting other souls who have a name and they have a story. We have a Savior who has a name and has a story for us. And then we need, a, we need Christians with a name and a story. And that's what we get in closing out this chapter. We'll not read all through it. But the first Christian in Saul's life was this guy named Ananias. You might say he was the one who led him to the Lord. He is the one who baptized him. And so we need Christians. Now, the other thing that Saul is going to begin to experience is how much he needs the church. Because he went through right from the get-go a lot of suffering. And we get that in Acts chapter 9. There arose, you know, more suffering. And now Saul's on the receiving end of where he used to be the giver, the one who was doing it. And so Ananias would be the first Christian to touch Saul's life literally and personally. He baptized him. He'd be the person who would be at the table on the side after service to pray with you if you wanted to receive Christ today. We're going to give you an opportunity for that. So if you want to, there's going to be someone there that will pray with you. Two people stand out for me in my own personal journey. First is Reverend Sanborn. I was raised in a Baptist church in Nyack, New York. He was the pastor. On an Easter, when I was 10 years old, he's the one that baptized me. He's the one through whom I first received the Lord. I think of a man whose name I don't know that I talked about in Virginia. I'm going to meet him in heaven impact on my life. I don't even know his name, and he doesn't even probably even remember how good I looked <laughs> or how well I played tennis. <laughs> so you have this Ananias, and oh, how Saul would remember Ananias, the first Christian. And he's saying, Lord, what do you mean? What are you kidding me? You're going to go Saul of Tarsus? He's the one that's killing us. And, Saul, and Jesus said to Saul, he is what? A chosen vessel of mine. God chooses the foolish things worth make. God, God's choosing. I mean, if you really stop and think, why did he choose me? I'm just this beat-up vessel. 
but he's given to us this treasure in what? Earthen vessels. That the glory may not be of us, but of him. We're all these broken vessels that God has chosen for his purpose. And Saul certainly experienced it. Secondly, he had some disciples in verses 19 through 25. Some of these disciples became a part of his story. And these disciples were there to help him. These disciples were those who were helping him to learn and understand things. For me, five years in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Five years in the Lord's house down in Costa Mesa. Five years as Pastor Chuck, my pastor. And those formative years are so important. Those early years. And Saul had that. Not for very long, as we'll look at in a moment. And by the way, Saul's conversion not only radically changed him, but in years to come, his conversion changed individuals, kings, Timothys, centurions. It changed families, his conversion. I think of the Philippian jailer who through his conversion in prison came to Christ. He changed cities, beginning in Jerusalem, then Antioch, and then Saul's conversion, his relationship with Christ changed things radically. We never know what God will do when he brings a new Christian into our lives. You never know what's going to happen. So then he has these disciples who were there for him when he was going through difficult times. They're trying to kill him, so they lower him down the basket. Disciples took him by night and lowered him down that basket. Barnabas comes into the story. You see, Barnabas is the son of encouragement, and he's a part of Saul's story. He's that one who came alongside him to encourage him. He's the one that believed in him when nobody else wanted him around. He goes and gets him and brings him to the apostles in Jerusalem. He's the one that was there for Saul. Now, Saul and Barnabas had a, I believe, a very deep friendship. And they, they worked together and they traveled together. But they also had a rift in their relationship over John Mark. You see, relationship's depth is many times forged through very difficult things. And those that you go through in life, that you go through difficult things, even your own relationship, become the very thing that you begin to appreciate more and more and more. Barnabas was such a man to Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas became a part of his story. And, the, and then we have Saul of Tarsus himself. Because what happened is, he gets saved, and then God takes him for three years down into, into the Arabian Peninsula. You wouldn't get this from Acts, but we'll look at it as we go through Acts. For three years, God sort of moved him away. He blow him in the basket, he's gone. Then he comes back, goes to Damascus. Then he's going to go down to Jerusalem. They're weary of, leery of him. Barnabas gets him, takes him to them. And then God takes him off the scene again for seven more years. You think Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle? Man, God, you got to put him right out there in the forefront because he's got a testimony. You see, Saul learned the hard way. Saul gets saved. He says, you know... If the Jews could hear my story, what's going to stop them from coming to Jesus? They're going to believe. They're going to accept me. They're going to think, man, that's awesome. Well, Saul says, Lord, I want to tell them my story in Jerusalem. And you know what Jesus said to him? You better get out of them or your story is going to be over. You better get out of Jerusalem because they're going to kill you. They, they, they don't want you around. He's saying, there's no way. I just had this experience. Jesus says, you better get out of there. And he learned throughout his life, following him day in and day out, were these Jews that wanted him dead. That's what happened. 
And so God removes him for 10 years. And in those 10 years in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, in Tarsus, God is ministering to him personally. You see, we need Jesus more than we need anyone else. And he needed to be trained and, and sanctified and understand. And in those, in those years, God was giving to him the mysteries of the kingdom, giving him many things that he wrote about in the epistles. It's interesting also that at the end of Paul's life, he spent a lot of time in prison. And you think, well, hold on a second. Saul in prison, he needs to be out. Paul the apostle, you got you to get him out. Well, in those years in prison, he's writing the New Testament, most of it. So God has, you know, in cording us off and separating us out, know this, we need it. We need God to have us alone so he can minister to us personally. We are Christians. Saul of Tarsus was a Christian with a name and a story, and Jesus cordoned him off for, for 10 years and then, in the end, in prison itself. Now we have in verses 32 through the end, we have Peter showing up again. Peter also became a part of his story. You see, there are people, we need people. We need Christians. We need the church more than ever. Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. And so much more as you see that day approaching. It's not getting easier, brothers and sisters. We are experiencing now what many in the world have experienced a hundred times worse. And that is the persecution and the hateful things that are going on against Christians, you and me. We need to gather like this. We need to be together. We need one another. We need all those people that God brings along because that's a part of the story that God's making with our lives. So would you bow your heads with me and pray? Because I want to give anyone here an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ this morning. That you understanding in your heart, battling maybe in your mind, this need you have to get right with God. And we understand the battle. It is a battle. And so Jesus came and died for your sin. He paid the price you couldn't pay. On the cross, God laid on him all your sin. And if you, making a choice, which you must, want that relationship with God, it's going to require you making that choice, and I'm hoping and praying if you don't know and have not made that choice, that you'll make it this morning. It's simply saying to God, I'm a sinner. I've been fighting this truth for a long time. I've been fighting it for a short time. I know that what I'm hearing is true about Jesus, about the gospel, and about my need to get right with you. And then you're going to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. And I want to walk now with you all the days of my life. That's what we're asking. That's what I'm giving you an opportunity. So three simple steps. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up. Then I'm going to ask you to stand up because when you stand up, you are making that decision publicly. And in so doing, all the reasons and all the fears and all the excuses, God washes away because now you've been obedient to what you know in your heart what you know in your conscience you need to do. You've just done it. And I can testify, as many of us in this room can, when we make that, when we stand up for Jesus, he washes away all of it. The third thing I'm going to do is just walk up to one of the tables on the side, and there someone will pray for you. And what we're going to do, if there's someone here, if that's you, like I was sharing, the angels in heaven go crazy, rejoice. 
we're going to give it up for you today. So as we're praying, brothers and sisters, Christian, as you're praying, if that's you today and you want to get right with God, would you please raise your hand up so that I can see that. I want to miss it. I want to acknowledge that right here this morning, right in this room. We're praying. We'll just continue just a couple. If that's you, I, I, I don't know that someone's battling that this morning, but we want to make sure that we've given you that space a little bit this morning to say, I need to get right with God. I know that I'm not. As we sing this last song, now let's bring our hearts to God and I think just a thankfulness to Him for our stories, whether they be good, bad, or whatever. God has saved us by His blood. We can worship Him together. And so as we start this, you're sitting, but as we begin singing, whenever you, whenever you would, just stand before the Lord in, in a thankfulness today for what He's done in your life and saving your soul from sin, death, and hell. Amen. Let's do that.